We're going to look at the first 11 verses this morning. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him in there. Martha served, and Lazarus was, at, was one of those reclining at the table. And Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, who, he who had, was about to portray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only to, on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. I uh, was quite moved by a, a couple of parts of our service this morning. One was just in this last song we sang. Let me remind you of them because I think they're pertinent to our direction we're going this morning. You are good when I'm poor and needy. You are true when I'm parched and dry. You still reign in the deepest valley. You're still God in the darkest of night. My question to you this morning is, do you get discouraged with your lack of devotion for Christ at times? I do. Felt it even recently. Just a real deep discouragement when I begin to look at myself and I look at my efforts and I look around at my, and I look around around me and I look at people who are doing it, or at least seemingly doing it way better than I am. And I get discouraged by that. And I, and I start thinking to myself, what's wrong with me? And then what happens a lot, at least for me, and maybe you can uh, concur with this, is that it fuels this kind of desire to at least give the appearance of more piety in my life than actually what actually is. Anyone falling into that trap lately? It's, it's a deadly one for sure. And um, I used to do this a lot when I would be in pastor gatherings. I'd walk in and man, I'd be super intimidated by these guys who seemingly looked or appeared, or at least from on paper or through social media, whatever, seemed to be much better at what they do than I did. I mean, this, it, it, it's an insidious kind of thing. But, but here's the thing that I want us to wrestle with this morning, is fake piety of whatever brand you want to call it, um, and some people call this fake potty poser, right? Or fair weather fan, or uh, you know, bandwagon Christianity. We all know this. We've we've all seen this. I, I have a good friend of mine who's focused with me and Amanda right now that there's room on the bandwagon for Michigan State. 
Um, I wish he was here right now. Corey would appreciate this. Um, Michigan State's having an exceptional season in football until yesterday and where Purdue, an unranked team, destroyed them. So I texted him last night and I said, hey, by the way, we're rebuilding the bandwagon in UT, and so you're welcome to join us as well. Um, but sometimes we just feel like we're bandwagon Christians, right? We just feel like we're bandwagon Christians. We feel like we're poser Christians. We feel like we are having to, we put a lot of our efforts towards fake piety in our lives rather than pursuing and resting in and enjoying the things God has given us because of what Christ has accomplished and doing the very things that we've seen here in this text. Just enjoying who Christ is. Extravagantly giving ourselves to Christ. Serving Him. But sometimes that's not enough for us, is it? We, we still feel this need inside of us to prove ourselves as Christians. And so then that then creates this vicious cycle of discouragement with our weak devotion. But Christian devotion, and I think we'll see today in this text, is more than proving that you are not a poser, not a bandwagon Christian, not a fair-weather fan. It's more than a list of pietistic efforts to prove that you're a legit Christian. It's the, at the root of what it means to, for Christian devotion is to look at our devotion through the lenses of delight. That what we see here in Martha and Lazarus and, 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 and Mary is not people who had it all together. Actually, quite the opposite. But they're actually people who were devoted to Christ, not because of things they had to prove to him, but because of things that they were placing their delight in. That Christ truly is worth you placing all of your delight in him. And that the return on that gain is a life of, of, of devotion that's quite imperfect, imperfect. That's very sometimes uh, touch and go at times in our lives, but it's one that is really, really precious and beautiful. Even if we're walking in a limp all the way to heaven. I loved our time yesterday with our people with Leadership Lab because we talked a lot about this in terms of how we care for one another in the church. And a big way we care for one another in the church is, is not just preaching at people, do this, do that, do this. This is what it means for you to recover your darkness, but actually walking around sinners and sufferers as sinners and sufferers, hoping in Christ. That real delight is, I'm sorry, real devotion is not about you and I performing some kind of Christian expertise. It's just not. It's the, it's the very fabric of everything we've been trying to build here at Grace Church. My main idea this morning that I want us to just think about and think about well is that true Christian devotion is fueled by a deep delight in the cross and the accomplishments of Christ. Let me say that again. That true Christian devotion is fueled by a deep delight in the accomplishments of Christ. We're going to look at four headings this morning that will hopefully help you get our process through this. First, we're going to look at the diversity of devotion in the Christian life. I think we see in Martha and Lazarus and Mary that not all of our devotion looks the same, and that's actually quite a beautiful thing. 
We're also going to look at the traits of Christ's exalting devotion. The what, like when you look at all of people's devotion, what's, what's really undergirding in that? What comes out of that? What's, what's the things that you see in true devotion? Then we're going to look at some challenges to our devotion to Christ. And then lastly, we'll look at the benefits. So those are going to be our four things this morning. Let me give you kind of a kind of a contextual kind of setting of what's happening in this text so far, because what we talk about today actually impacts the next three or four weeks of our study in John. First, I want you to recognize that in chapters 11 through 20, it's helpful, right? We need to think about this. Chapters 11 through 20 is really bookended by a resurrection account. So we saw this last week, and then it ends the book in resurrection. And the reason why that's so important is we've noted this several times, but you just need to pay attention to what's happening here is that John has been building this picture all the way up through chapter 11 and these signs, and the final sign is resurrection, and it's setting forth the stage for the resurrection of Christ. And so everything that we're going to study now between now and the end of this, this, our, our preaching series in John is about us pursuing, us resting in the resurrection of Christ. Second thing I want you to notice about this and what we need to understand about the setting is chapters 12 through 20, not 11 through 20, but 12 through 20, is actually the just, just one week. Everything we're going to read about and study now is a detailed account. It's not like the other Gospels. A detailed account of the last week of Christ's life. And that's beautiful when we get to see firsthand. Just, it's like someone's just portraying, like writing a novel to us about Jesus' last week. So pay attention in our study the next few weeks. Because it's going to be... Beautiful when we get to see Christ in that kind of focus and clarity. And then the, the last, which is really more important to today, is that Caiaphas last week did not recognize that his plans of putting Jesus on the block, right, to, to put him on the chopping block for the people, was really playing into God's sovereign plans. We noted that last week. Well, the same thing is true for Mary's anointing of Jesus. She, she's, an, she's an unwitting participant in something much bigger than what she even knows in this moment, just like Caiaphas was an unwitting participant in God's sovereign plan. That what we want to see in this family, and particularly in Mary's devotion this morning, is not that we are aspiring to be better people, which I guess, of course, we are, and we're not aspiring to be better self-determined people or to find better methods as Christians. That the Christian message is not these things at all. But as we see in Mary's devotion to Christ, and, and her brother and sister, of course, too, we see delight. True, unabased delight. Something that will ravage the soul and the heart if we will immerse ourselves in the resurrection and life of Christ. Okay? So this first heading that I want to talk about this morning that I think will uh, set the stage for us is to notice the, the diversity of Christ's exalting devotion. From a high level, here's what we see. We see Martha. She's devoted to Christ through her service. We got Lazarus, who's devoted to Christ through his fellowship. He's enjoying Christ's presence, relationship. And then we see in Mary, extravagance. Like there's, a, there's some people are gifted with the devotion and their devotion towards extravagance. 
Let's just look at those briefly, just for a moment, in terms of understanding what these mean. So you look at Mary's servitude. We all know, I'm sorry, Martha's servitude. We all have heard the, you know, the, the stories, the kind of pitting Martha against Mary kind of thing, right? And then in another parable, another story, in another gospel, we, we find that Martha is the one who's dutifully getting ready for dinner, and Mary is the one who's kind of sitting there, and she's just like immersed in Jesus' teaching. And Martha gets a little bit kind of sideways, and she goes to Jesus and said, look what he's doing, what she's doing, and my sister's not doing what I'm doing. She, what is she doing? She's comparing her devotion to her sister's devotion, is she not? And so one of the things that sometimes happens in the way that we think about each other's devotions is we begin to value what we think is devotion versus maybe the lack of someone else's devotion. And I would say we've even done the reverse sometimes in looking at Mary and Martha. Sometimes we look at Martha because we see Jesus's response to her and he counters her response and we sometimes then say well then what Christians really need to do in real devotion is to do nothing except just throw off restraint and there is no 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 structure around our faith and that would be a poor assessment of the situation as well but Martha's service is devotion it's a good devotion just because there's conflict between her devotion and Mary's devotion doesn't mean her devotion somehow comes up second place or that Mary's devotion comes up second place. Sometimes one of the biggest obstacles you and I can have as brothers and sisters in Christ is to value the contribution of someone else's devotion to Christ. Amen. It's really hard for us sometimes. And I think that's what we see here in this passage. And so when Jesus corrects her in this other story, hey, Mary is devoting herself to me and you are spending your time in the kitchen. Again, he wasn't saying to her, don't spend time in the kitchen. He was just saying, please understand that there's lots of different ways to devote yourself, to show yourself, to show your devotion, to express your devotion to me. Then you get the brother. And this just seems like the dude would be doing this, right? He's the guy in there on Thanksgiving Thursday, right? And all the women are in the kitchen working on the dinner. And he's sitting at the recliner watching the parade or getting ready for the football game or, you know, whatever, right? And, and sometimes we look at that and we go, well, yeah, of course he's doing that. But we need to look at his devotion because what we see here in this picture is something wonderful, right? It says... Um, in verse, let's see here, uh, verse 2. And so they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was the one of those reclining with him at the table. At the end of the day, and I would make sure we're, we, we see this, we can, we can give all of our attention to service, yet miss the delight that the service is serving. And so Lazarus has the audacity to actually enjoy the person his dinner's thrown in honor of. Isn't that beautiful? Like he actually is going to go sit at the table with Jesus and enjoy time with Christ. And it's a really wonderful lesson to us about that importance of that aspect of our devotion to Christ, right? That we want to enjoy Christ because Christ is supremely enjoyable. Amen? And that's something that we want to be challenged by, right? Like he just loves and he enjoys his Savior. And why would he not? I mean, just last chapter, he was the one raised from the dead. 
So what would be the most natural way to enjoy your Savior than to spend time with Him and enjoy Him profoundly? And I don't know about you, but probably one of, this, one of the obstacles to us going and sitting at the table is the fact that we don't feel worthy to sit at the table. And that's probably one of the biggest obstacles for us, right? We look at ourselves and we go, well, well, what, what, what counts me as someone who's able to go and sit at a table with the Lord? And the answer to that is both a, there's a goodness, a little bit of goodness in that, right? Because there's, there's a little bit of a self-check, right? We're a little bit honest with ourselves. And we go, I'm not really worthy to be there. And I doubt Lazarus felt that he was worthy to be there either. But here's what Lazarus knew. Jesus raised, raised him from the dead. And there was nothing Lazarus did to earn that. So then what else would Jesus require of his people than to go sit with him and enjoy a meal with him? This is really what we see Jesus do constantly throughout the Gospels, is to just enjoy meals with his people. See, there's a deception that creeps up in our sense of unworthiness that makes us feel like, because I don't see any respectable value in myself, and neither does Jesus. Let me commend to you, if you haven't picked up your copy of this, shameless plug here, go down the hallway and pick up Gentle and Lowly, because Gentle and Lowly will cure that woe for you. It's a really, really good book. Because it reminds us that that is not the way Jesus approaches his people. It's not the way that Jesus draws near to us. He doesn't draw near to us shaking his finger at us. He draws near to us with a full-on embrace. Right? He invites us to put our weight on his own shoulders, not ours. And that is the way God always, through his Son, comes to us. He does not command you to clean the outside of the cup because he knows what's inside the cup is what's important, and he's cleansing the putrid stuff that's inside there for you. And that's why we want to wrestle with that. We want to, we want to think about that, and we want to enjoy that. We dine with Jesus because, one, delighting in him means I'm delighting in the full merit of who he is. That he's the one who brought me from death to life. Number two, we dine with Jesus because no, like, there's no need for us to keep our distance from him. He's done everything so that you wouldn't feel that you couldn't have closeness with him. That doesn't disregard God's holiness. It's the fact that he himself assured us that he he, he accomplished all the God's will for us in our place. Amen. And Jesus loves to commune with his people. Yes. I mean, legitimately loves to commune with his people. Brother and sister, like, I, don't, I can't imagine a better takeaway. I could probably stop right there and we could just roll on out of here, right? Like, that needs to be the thing that we center our souls on this week and every week to come, for that matter. And then you got Mary. And we just don't know what to do with Mary, right? She seems immature. She seems brash. She seems irresponsible. Like Mary's unrestraint catches us off guard, right? I mean, let's just be honest. Like, I know I can't be alone in a room when I see it that way, right? Like, there's something about Mary and you go, oh. one, because it probably puts us a bad light on us, right? Because we're like, I don't, I'm not willing to do that. 
But we look at Mary and we go, I don't really know what to do with this. It just seems so otherworldly. Now, again, sometimes looking at Mary's response in comparison to her sister and her, um, her brother's response seems to us like that somehow or another, that's what we're supposed to be anchoring ourselves towards. Like we got to be like Mary. The Bible never calls you to be like Mary, Lazarus, Martha, Peter, James, John, Joseph, uh, Abraham, any name other person in here. You make the Bible about someone else's character rather than Christ's character, then you've got the Bible all wrong. What we need to see in this is not so much that we have to repeat what Mary has done, although you may be able to do that, I don't know, but that you are giving yourselves wholeheartedly to your Savior. That she sends and spends all of her most highly treasured and valued items in this perfume, like 300 denarii, right? That is a year's salary. That is not just (laughs) Doritos and dip with your buddies this weekend. Like she spent it all. And there's something about that that we want to say, is that the way in which I approach my life of Christ? Not that you literally need to go in, empty your bank account right now, but that you actually are willing to say, man, like if, if I'm going to enjoy the things God has given me, why would I not enjoy them spending them on Jesus? Right? That would be the thing that we want to take away from here. Like, we don't know what drove her to this extravagance. Lots of people want to say that she's like, there is an account where, like, as a woman of ill repute, it comes and washes her, the hair, her, um, his feet with her hair. And there's, there's some differences among commentators of whether or not that's the exact same account. But here's what we can say. Great sinners, saved and forgiven, are prone to excessive delight. Great sinners, saved and forgiven by a great Savior, are prone to excessive delight. And again, it may look differently for all of us here. But maybe that is what we should commend going forward here. So that's, that's the diversity that we see in our devotion to Christ, right? Well, what about the traits then that we see inside this? Looking back kind of through this and mostly looking at kind of Mary's um, devotion. There's, there's, there's at least four that I want to note here. First, I want to note the fact that one of the traits of true devotion, Christ-exalting devotion, is courage. Wait a minute, hold on a second, Pastor. You just told me that I don't have to muster up something inside of me and to prove that I am devoted to Christ. And now you're telling me that one of the traits of true devotion is courage, so therefore, if I'm not courageous, I am not really devoted to Christ. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying because what Christ did, it will then spring forth into courage. I mean, just think about what is happening here. Just at the end of chapter 11... The Pharisees are making it very clear to everybody, we want Jesus and we're going to arrest him. Now, this family is most likely an affluent family that everyone knew. In fact, the fact that that Jews would go out and mourn with them after their brother's death tells you that this family wasn't just a family on the block. This was a family that was prominent. They came from Jerusalem out to Bethany to mourn with them. So this this is not a family that's not well known. And so it would take great courage 
for them to not only, when Jesus comes back to Bethany, to just kind of maybe even house him, but that they actually threw a party in his honor. They have a dinner in his honor. There's something courageous that happens to people who delight in Jesus. That you don't have to muster up that kind of courage, but there's something that just grows in us that makes us realize that, you know what, the plans of men are, of men are plans at best. And they can make all the threats they want to, but God is the one who's ultimately in control. So I can rest in that, and I can enjoy that, and I don't care what, what Bubba down the road here in Jerusalem tells me what I can do with Jesus or not. I'm going to enjoy Jesus now. So delight in Christ gives, breaks forth in devotion that, look, that is courageous. Then there's sacrifice. Again, we note the... The breaking of this perfume, this ointment, and the excessive sacrifice, one commentator says, and how that, well, it annoys us. Right? Why? That just seems over the top. And you've had someone come to you sometimes like, don't be that guy. Don't be that, that kind of Christian. You can be a Christian, but don't be that kind of Christian. And that's what we're saying to Mary sometimes when we see her, her, her extravagant uh, sacrifice here. But the reality is, that is one of the traits of true devotion. Is that it's not something that you yourself do, but it's something that flows out of that delight in Jesus. Mary wasn't doing this to prove anything to anybody. Not even to Jesus. She was doing this because Jesus proved himself to us. That he's the one who goes to the cross for us. And why not then sacrifice everything you own? Nothing we, are, nothing we own surpasses the worth of Christ. Nothing. Friends, We've, and we've seen this happen at, at Grace Church so many different times. Like every time I think that, man, we are on a hair's breadth of this thing collapsing. I, and trust me, as a church planner, you just feel that way, unfortunately. But the reality is, is God will never, ever let his church fail. And not only will he not let this collective body of church fail, but he won't let the individual parts of this church fail either. You, me. And so for us... To say we are, there's a trait of sacrifice, it is that we understand that there's nothing that we can spend in this life that even comes close to the surpassing worth of Jesus. Third trait we see is humility. Humility. I mean, the root word of humility is what? Humiliate. I don't know how many of you guys volunteer to be humiliated. No one likes to feel humiliated. In fact, it's Quite the opposite. We like to try to avoid being humiliated because none of us like that. Like you're in a group of friends and someone says something and draws attention to you and you just get, wow, that, that didn't feel good. But the word humiliate is, um, is really to mean we're casting off the opinions of others for something greater than their opinions. To be humiliated means it's like, I, it's okay to be humiliated so long as what you're being humiliated for actually is worth being humiliated for. Right? That I, I can cast off the opinions of others. And you can imagine, everyone had opinions about, I mean, obviously, Judas did. 
had an opinion about what she was doing right there. But it's okay to be humiliated for Christ. That true humility, um, humility is to delight in the person and work of Jesus. I wonder how many of us are so delighted in Jesus that it, it, has, it gives away. And again, it doesn't mean it all happens at one time or that it happens in the same way for each one of us. But the fact is that you're willing to say, no, I'm staking my ground on Christ, not because of me trying to prove anything to him, but because he himself has proven him, himself to me. And the last trait there in this section is intimacy. Mary literally going back to the last point humiliates herself by pulling her hair down and washing the feet of jesus now why that's so important is because you would wash people and anoint them but the one thing you would not do is touch their feet like that would be like the grossest in fact i would say they probably feel the same way today right and she humiliates herself by this but here's the thing about intimacy though is that humiliation and intimacy are really intimately connected because when she lets her hair down, what is she saying when she lets her hair down? I, I, I want you to fully see me. And it would have been scandalous for this woman to put her hair down in mixed company for sure. But when you're in the presence of Jesus, it's never, ever, ever, ever scandalous to pull your hair down in front of him. She is willing to draw near to her god and her savior she's willing not only to allow christ to see who she really is she's not really concerned how other people see her as well because again everyone had their opinions about like remember again i don't know we don't know if these stories are intimately connected or not but remember in the other version of this over in luke uh well i mean everyone's like well, jesus knew who he was consorting with at this point <laughs> he was certainly to get up and leave the room no, she wasn't worried about anyone's thoughts and opinions of her at this point. She just wanted to be seen and known by her Savior. Friends, that is like the chief trait of devotion to Christ is to say, I, I have nothing to lose. I, I want to be seen by my Savior. See, Jesus really sees you. And because he really sees you, and he gave his life for you, you are invited to, be, to, to, to see, let him see you. I mean, does that make sense? Like, he sees you, but he still invites you to say, you can actually, it's okay. I know you, so therefore you have nothing to hide. Amen. And this is one, one of the greatest places about, uh, about how we get freedom from sin in our life is when we're willing to be seen by Jesus. And likewise, at times, be seen by our brothers and sisters in Christ. See, one of the anchors to sin's continued power in our life is that um, power that remains in us that says, I've got to protect myself. I've got to hide myself. I can't let you see me because you won't like what you see. And you know what? Maybe we may not like what, you, what we see. And God's holy. He, he doesn't like sin. But he did send Jesus. And therefore invites you to be known and seen. 
And so, friend, if you're in here this morning and you're struggling with sin in some way, whether it's a pattern, a consistent pattern, or, or whatever it may be, just understand the freedom to the pathway to a freedom in that sin for you and for me, for all of us, is to be seen by Jesus. Amen. Third heading is then we got to note the challenges to Christ's exalting devotion. We see these, the diversity of it, we see the traits of it, but you've got to understand there's challenges to our devotion, and they come in a couple of different forms. I'm going to note two. One is the me, myself, and I aspect to the challenge. That's what Judas is struggling with. Judas is struggling with me, myself, and I. There I say that's probably where most of us struggle with devotion. And here's a few aspects to his me, myself, and I, that really need to be taken note of. First, it's pragmatism. Sometimes we're just too darn pragmatic to actually give ourselves to Jesus. And that's exactly what we see here with, with, with uh, Judas, right? How dare you waste this perfume on Jesus? It could have been sold for the for 300 denarii. How dare you do this? Now look, we know there's wisdom in being practical. We do. We know there's lots of wisdom in being practical. Let's just note a couple of ideas. Proverbs 6, 6 through 8, instructs us to go to the ant, you sluggard, and consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores up provisions in summer and its food at harvest. So we, we know the Bible commends, you know, frugality. We know the Bible tells us in Matthew 25 through 17 that one of the main ways God provides for his people is through money and that therefore through good stewardship of that money. And he commends us to good stewardship and that's why he goes to these different stewards and he blesses them based on their investment back into the kingdom, of course. But friends, here's the ultimate point that every believer should wrestle with. And this is what we see impact, we see in ourselves as we sometimes allow pragmatism to kind of rule our hearts that God will meet all of our needs. Philippians 4.19, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of the glory of Jesus Christ. Or that when Jesus comes and there's a parable of the hidden treasure, we all know this, this is over in uh, Matthew 13 reminds us that our treasure is in Christ and like the one who sold everything to buy the property with the hid, of this hidden treasure, we too are in view, uh, in view of our lives. We should give all of, our God, all, of our, all of ourselves so that we might gain heaven. That the real reward is not the few frugal benefits of money and comfort and power and influence. I think we talked about this in Sunday school this morning, right? And so let's be reminded that sometimes our pragmatism really is less about being a good steward of what God has given us and more about serving our own interests. And that's what we see in Judas, right? That's what we see in Judas, and that's what's not commendable to us. Pragmatism can be good, right? To be practical be good, but only insofar as that our, it, it elevates the true treasure of our hearts, so go buy the land where that hidden treasure is and give your entire life to developing that land where the true treasure is. That's what it means to be truly practical. That's the only thing that's really going to preserve your storehouses of your life in the end. 
And Judas is like, he has no concept of this. How about another challenge of the me, myself, and I is false altruism. Altruism is just do good things. And, and this is really a, a hairy one as well, right? He tells her, this should have been given to the poor. But we're quickly told, right, right after this, well, he didn't say this because he really cared about the poor. And so altruism can kind of have this double-edged thing, right? Because we are called to do good works. We are called to serve the poor. We are called to serve others and love others. And that's something that does flow out of the Christian life, right? It's one of those aspects of a Christian devotion that actually are true. But we need to be careful of altruism as optics. That's what Judas is about. He wanted to be seen as concerned about the poor rather than actually be concerned about the poor. There's an altruism that poses, right, bandwagon, fair weather fan of Jesus. It makes us appear to be truly devoted to Christ, but actually in the end, it just shows that the putrid, I said earlier, putrid inner cup reality of our life. It's about public perception. It's about social advance. We see this everywhere in our world today, right? Like, listen, I mean, you know, don't believe any politician who tells you they care about anything, right? And I don't mean to be disparaging of people. I'm sure some of these people have good intentions, right? But the reality is, is altruism as optics doesn't get anyone anywhere, does it? It doesn't. And so, then you got hypocrisy here, the me, myself, and I, right? Because at the end of the day, he's serving himself. One of the biggest challenges is the fact that here we are with Judas. He's one of the, the few. He's one of the twelve. He's one of the inner circle, right? The inner ring, if you want to use that terminology. He's that guy. But we're seeing who he really is right here, Right? The real inner ring of who he is. He was a thief, John says. I mean, directly, he was a thief. He was concerned about the money bag. He had talked himself into thinking, hey, I deserve this, and so if you don't give this money to the money bag, I'm the guy who's out here who's following Jesus. I'm the one who doesn't have a house. I'm the one who doesn't know where I'm going to sleep tonight. And so therefore, I'm kind of, it's kind of like, well, you know, I, I, it's okay for me to kind of pick a little bit out of the money bag from time to time. These are, one of the, these are the challenges that we face in ourselves as it relates to the me, myself aspects of our following of Jesus and our devotion. Because devotion can quickly fall into these categories we just talked about. But then there's one other aspect to the challenge. This is, I was at point one, really, altogether. The point two of the challenge is... Be careful the cost of your association with Jesus. Because at the end of this, verses 9 through 11, everyone came out to see Jesus, but not only Jesus, but who else? Lazarus, right. <laughs> and then they determine they're going to kill Lazarus. Side note, didn't that seem kind of funny to you? Here's a man who's already seen death raised back to life, and yet the threats of him going to his grave again, 
I mean, let's just do the math, right? But, but we also need to look into that and just look at, be honest, there is a cost with association with Jesus. It just is. There's just costs to following Jesus. He, Lazarus, and, and here, again, just backing up a little bit, all the more silly, I mean, all the more crazy that these people threw a party for Jesus. You know why? They're not afraid of death anymore. Why should they be? But there's still a cost. You're not guaranteed another breath on this planet until Jesus returns. I don't care how good you are, how much you give to the church, what bumper stickers you put on your car, what Bibles you've read, what Bible studies you've had, or books you've read. You're not guaranteed one more second. Because Jesus gets to say how you spend your life. And if you choose to associate with Jesus, it could give you another 50 more years on this planet, or it can give you another week. There's challenges to our devotion, and we need to recognize that. And the question for all of us is, do we see that? Are we willing to own that? But there are benefits then. There are benefits, even though there are challenges, the benefits far outweigh the challenges, right? Even though there's costs, like, you, you know, if you run a business or you run a department or you're a manager, you always do what, a cost-benefit analysis? You, you've probably been in that world. I used to do this when I was in management, uh, in grocery store management, and you just have to do this cost-benefit kind of analysis of, like, how much you spend here and where will you get your money in return for this? Your death, if that's where God takes you, is a small cost to the benefit you get from it. Oh, I know that sounds really high-minded and deeply spiritual, but it's just true. And there are benefits, and that's our last heading, right? And, and what are these benefits? Well, number one, when, Jesus, when Judas is giving Mary the rundown, what does Jesus do? Leave her alone. What's he doing? He's protecting his own. Even when you're getting run down by the world or getting run down by other believers in Christ, Jesus has got your back. God has got your back. Romans 8.26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Or Romans 12, 18 through 19. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, with all believe, um, beloved. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For what is written, vengeance is mine, and I will pay it, says the Lord. So for the believer right now, and maybe you're just feeling the fire constantly of following Jesus, the benefit is that you've got, Jesus has got your back. And he'll have your back until he returns again. Jesus protects his own. Jesus honors his own. He says this about Mary. Like, leave her alone. Like, she's doing something profound. And, 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 and another gospel of this same story, Matthew 26, verse 13, he says, she will be, when, when, when the gospel is preached, this day will be remembered. Friends, remember your faithfulness to Christ 
may cost you a lot, but when the gospel is preached, Jesus honors his own. Jesus honors his own. And then last on this is that there, when we are, one of the benefits of knowing Christ is that Jesus is attractive. I mean, that's what happens here, right? They find out Jesus is here, and all these people come out to see Jesus. They come out to see Lazarus. God brings the world to us. Just be faithful. Trust God, right? Not because you need to muster up that trust and faithfulness, but because Christ has been faithful. And he does the work for you, and you just you sit and rest yourselves in Christ. And the attraction of that will draw all men unto Jesus. And where he is preached, all men will be drawn. And women will be drawn unto Jesus. What does it mean for us to be an attractive church? What it doesn't mean is that we're, we have to morally capitulate to the world. I fear sometimes that's how some people see it. And some believers do. Rather, it's one that loves. And we're going to see in the next chapter, in a few weeks, John chapter 13, verse 31, they will know you by my, by your love for one another. So to be an attractive church, one that draws on all people unto Jesus, is to love one another in such a way that it's just otherworldly. A kind of love that the world has no concept for. That it's extraordinary. It's not tribal, but it's heavenly. It's not worldly, but otherworldly. It's extraordinary love. The last 18 months has been extremely tough on the church. It has divided brothers and sisters over things that are regrettable. Some people... Some Christians have weathered well through that. I have heard of pastor friends of mine whose churches didn't weather that well. And it hurts my heart. But some did. And the ones that I hear that did are the ones who kept saying, it's all about Jesus and Jesus alone, and I got nothing else to offer you. Regardless of our differences, the church that loves one another across tribal lines with a heavenly, otherworldly love is the church that will preserve itself to the end or will be preserved to the end. So let's finish up. Here's what we've seen. One, our devotion arises from delight in Christ alone. Our devotion arises from delight in Christ alone. Cannot say that more bluntly can't say that more clearly can't say that too many times our devotion arises from our delight in christ alone number two our love for one another arises from our delight in christ alone if you're struggling to love someone in this room right now delight in christ and what he's accomplished for you and i promise you it'll change your love for that person and then third our assurance of our devotion. This is what we began the whole thing about, right? 
being assured in our devotion, not being discouraged in our devotion, our assurance that our devotion matters and will not be put to shame is guaranteed by Christ alone. You don't have to guarantee your devotion. Isn't that the most wonderfully freeing truth you could ever imagine? No, your devotion is guaranteed by Jesus alone and what he has accomplished. Friends, be assured in that. And understand that's why we take of the table every week. At least one aspect of it. Because we come and we share this juice and this, and this bread together. Why? Because we are wrapped up into something much more heavenly than, you and I, than, than the world can even begin to imagine. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. And God will sustain it in all of its weakness until he returns. Amen? Amen? God, help us now as we finish up this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this truth, God. Help us to see in this not mechanical methods of how I need to prove myself or change myself, but that ultimately, Jesus, this is about the fact that you have changed us, and we are your people, and we live for that joy. We live for that delight. We love you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.